The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, uh, so this evening we return to our study of church history and for the past few weeks, we've been talking about one particular area of church history that's uh, fairly recent, uh, at least in the uh, talking about 2,000 years of church history, it's more recent. And that's the period of revivalism that began a little less than 200 years ago. Uh, revivalism began just after the Second Great Awakening at the beginning of the 19th century. But that that period still has a very profound effect on theology and practices of Baptists today. And that's when theology among Baptists really began to shift some, and that was because of the doctrine of regeneration. Uh, Baptists had always believed that uh, regeneration is a sole act of the Holy Spirit in which he works on the human heart to uh, bring a a sinner to spiritual life so that he might believe the gospel. And that was changed to a cooperative act between God and man so that man's decision is as critical to regeneration as God's. And in that new thinking of revivalism, the Holy Spirit is at most a facilitator while the actual work of regeneration is not done until a man as an act of his will makes an uninfluenced decision to receive Christ as Savior. And when I say that's new thinking, it's not new. It's not new to Roman Catholicism, it's not new to Pelagianism, it's not new to Arminianism, but it was new to the mainstream of Baptist thinking. Now, we've gone over that change extensively. Uh, It's called decisional regeneration, and so I'm not really going to backtrack too much on that territory again tonight. But I will comment that decisional regeneration is not a biblical position, neither is it an historical position of Baptist. But nevertheless, that that shift in understanding has had a profound effect on Baptist, and not only on the subject of regeneration, but it filters down into other doctrines. And this is what you can expect. When, when, you, when you go wrong on one doctrine, you can expect that it's going to affect other doctrines, and it'll have adverse effects. Uh, there is no dispute that the predominant doctrines of Baptist in soteriology were the doctrines of grace, And since revivalism has run its course, Baptists that still hold to the old confessions of faith that uh, give us those those doctrines, uh, the the Baptists that believe that has been greatly diminished today. And uh, the reason for that is this period of revivalism. Decisional regeneration is wholly incompatible with the doctrines of grace. And so if you hold to that, if you hold to what Uh, say that man can do what only God can do, then you're going to have different conclusions about how the new birth is affected. And then I want to pause there for just a moment as as we talk about this uh, in in relation to what Mrs. Rico said and and, uh, what I've been preaching for these past several weeks, that you notice that I keep bringing all of this back to the historical Baptist position. And you might wonder, well, why do I keep talking about Baptists? I mean, there are others that disagree with us. There are Lutherans and Methodists and Presbyterians and so on, Assemblies of God. And so there are many people that disagree with what we as Baptists teach. But to get to the answer why we really go back to the Baptist church all the time is that 
uh, we, we really have to go back to the beginning of the study. And our position is that the doctrines that we hold in our church have been consistent since the very beginning. We believe that there were people that believed just like us all the way back to the time of Christ. And we've gone through 2,000 years of church history looking at different documents and things that have been said and teachings of people to find out that that is absolutely a true statement. And as I said in that forum class this morning, this is a necessity that we believe that because if we didn't believe that our doctrines are the same as that of Jesus and the apostles, then we would try to correct that and get them to be right. But we do believe that this we are teaching what Jesus and the apostles taught. And so when someone comes along and they change a vital doctrine such as regeneration, then that takes us back to the very same issues that caused problems in the Christian church in the first place. And that was doctrines that that uh, people split on. They had divisions about. There were splits away from the doctrines of Christ and of the apostles. And the result of that is that we have dozens of different denominations uh, in the world today. And so when Baptists en masse turn to doctrines such as decisional regeneration, what we're doing is degrading truth, which risk the destruction of Baptist churches altogether. Now, we know that that can't actually happen. Matthew 16, 18 tells us that that can't happen. The church can never be destroyed altogether. But what can happen is the church can enter into a period where there are few churches that still maintain the truth. Now, it's remarkable that this change of regeneration was begun principally by one man who in almost all ways we could call a heretic. Uh, Charles Finney was that man, and he taught that uh, sinners must dispose themselves to salvation, or, or in other words, they have to prepare themselves for salvation by uh, an intellectual process of changing their minds. Now, this is what Finney said. He said, a revival is not a miracle, nor dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means, as much so as any other effect produced by the application of means. The belief that the new birth and revival depend necessarily on divine activity is pernicious. No doctrine is more dangerous than this, the prosperity of the church, and nothing more absurd. Now, when you state it like that, when you read what Finney actually wrote, most Baptists would reject that totally, just in toto. They reject all of that. And um, as they reject it, their practices confess that what Finney said is actually their real theological position. Now, we spent a good deal of time on that, and uh, we, we've talked about the cause of the problem. That's the decisional regeneration, change in regeneration. And uh, the chief effect of that is the way that it degrades the glory of God. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that salvation is by grace through faith, and he said it's this way so that no person can boast. But what decisional regeneration does, it injects man into the middle of God's activity just as God is about to bring himself the greatest glory. What God did was to create the world. He allowed the fall of man. He displayed his grace at Calvary. And just as he's ready to lift men out in the most glorious display of his mercy and his grace, the sinner says, well, you can't do anything until I, you have my permission. And so the most serious effect of decisional regeneration is this. The, the glory of God is diminished and... Uh, 
There are other effects that are, that, that are caused by that. The, the work of the church has changed. The preaching of the gospel has changed. Methods of evangelism are changed. And what I want to do tonight is to include something else about a change that came out of revivalism, and that is emotionalism and the manipulation of gospel singing. And uh, this one, this particular topic may surprise some of you tonight, so just grab hold and we'll see if we can get through it together and not get too mad at each other. Um, some of the things that, that we have discussed uh, that, that have taken place in revivalism, the things that have gone wrong, were displayed in the ministry of the most popular revival preacher of the 19th century, and that was Dwight Lyman Moody. That's D on your listening sheet, and that looks like it's totally out of place, stuck out there all alone. But all the other letters to this, as you know, are in all those other lesson sheets that you have. So I just give you this one letter tonight, and then you can take some notes about these different things that I want to talk to you about. What Charles Finney did, of course, was to punctuate the doctrine of decisional regeneration in revivalism, and he steered it off course, but then Dwight Moody was the one who perfected the use of decisional regeneration to give us a whole different atmosphere in church services and the way that preachers handle themselves in the pulpit. Now, we talked about some things about Moody last week, but Moody was not an ordained minister. He was an untrained preacher. Uh, actually one that spent virtually no time in Bible study, but he was a man that was gifted with enthusiasm and untiring resolve. Uh, a preacher that doesn't know doctrine, though, is a real problem when he gets into the pulpit. And that's why the Bible, it's a dangerous thing, and that's why the Bible warns that a person who, who handles the Word of God is not to be a novice. You don't stick somebody into the pulpit who doesn't, who hasn't learned the doctrines of God's word. I mean, to, to handle God's word is a very, is a tremendously awesome responsibility. And so the person who gets into the pulpit must be proved. Well, this was a problem with Moody because he was unproven. Uh, it didn't stop him because he didn't know doctrine. When he founded his first church, the a statement of faith that they adopted was meager at best. It had no explanations for the great doctrines of the faith. And so you can imagine as a follower of Finney's methods that he was heavily influenced in the lack of ability of preaching. Moody didn't know how to put together a logical sermon. He didn't know how to exegete scripture. And so you think about that and you wonder, well, well how does a preacher preach if he doesn't know the Bible? How do you get a following like Moody had without actually being able to preach? Well, it can happen. You look at Joel Osteen. I mean, I, I'm not critical for the sake of being critical of him. I'm just stating the facts. How did Joel Osteen become the most popular preacher in America when he doesn't know anything about the Bible? How does that happen? He had no training. He admits that he, he didn't study anything. So how does he do that? Well, first, he, he has a charismatic uh, personality. People like him. He's positive and upbeat. He's energetic. He dresses well. Someone said, you know, you can package everything right, but you still have to get on the stage and you have to speak. So what does Osteen do? He speaks. He tells his jokes to start his sermons. He tells his stories. He has these appealing anecdotes. He preaches a positive message. And he makes up for what he doesn't know by adding in all these very interesting human or very interesting human, human, human interest stories, is what I'm trying to say. He puts those into his sermons. Now, to, 
what we ought to do here is to roll back to 1870 and to Dwight Moody's time. And in Moody's time, preachers didn't tell jokes. I mean, that, that's uh, much more modern than Moody. But this is what one writer said about Moody. He said, the evangelist had an ability to tell stories and make biblical accounts come alive. He also had powers of persuasion and could market the gospel as effectively as he could sell shoes. And did I mention, uh, failed to mention probably that Moody's occupation was actually a shoe salesman. And then the writer goes on to say, however, his sermons were extremely diffuse, unconnected, rambling, and given to repetition and lacking in logical structure or thought. So Moody's sermons were just a hodgepodge of illustrations and texts that were repeating over and over one simple idea. And there are a variety of sources that say that he had a superabundance of anecdotes and he was always theologically inconsistent. And those comments actually read like a textbook for a modern revival preacher. I mean, that's, that's taking 1870 and putting it right into the modern pulpit. I think all of us know preachers that have more stories to tell than they have Bible to preach. And that's practically endemic in some of the Baptist fellowships. Long stories that are connected with a few scriptures that really don't have any teaching value. And the purpose of that is to raise emotions, to to get the emotions up, and then to get decisions. And that's one of the reasons that we've had to change. uh, Well, we abandoned the Master's Men Conference in Fresno several years ago, simply because I couldn't take any more of the stories. Uh, I couldn't take any more screaming and jumping on chairs and pounding the pulpit without getting a little bit of meat from the Word of God. So what I chose to do was to go to a place where I could hear the Bible opened and to hear a message brought from the Scriptures that actually expounds the text that we're dealing with. And this is one of the effects that we have of decisional regeneration, that preaching changed. And the main purpose of the service then becomes to get conversions and do that in any way possible. And so do you know what happens when you abandon biblical expositions and you put in their place stories to be told? Do you know what happens? The theological understanding of the crowd is greatly affected so that people don't really understand the doctrines of the faith any longer. And that's the very thing that we wrestled with when we brought in our new our confession of faith. When we adopted historic confession of faith a few years ago, people didn't understand what that confession meant. And then I can tell you another way that preaching gets off track, and you can tell that it is. Uh, you notice how many sermons are preached from the Old Testament. Now, for some reason, preachers think that the Old Testament is a place that you can go to take things out of context and to preach a, a topical message that has little to nothing to do with the meaning of that text. I was, I was reading something just the other day, which was actually quite humorous. It was written by a, uh, by a preacher that's actually in our area, not, not far from us here, and I, I won't mention his name, but he had a, a kind of an interesting thing that he said that, that uh, to be a, and he's a fundamental Baptist preacher, and he said to be a fundamental Baptist preacher, you've got to have at least three or four sermons on David and Goliath. I mean, you've got to have something out of the Old Testament on David and Goliath. I mean, that's like, that's like a staple of, uh, of that kind of preaching. But this is what a lot of preachers do. They, they go to the Old Testament in order to pull out some kind of text that they can use to preach a topical message, and that doesn't have anything to do with the text that they're reading. There isn't anything wrong with preaching out of the Old Testament. 
I like to preach from the Old Testament. Unfortunately, with our long series that we've had in Matthew and then this one we've had on the church, we don't have much of an opportunity to do that as of late. But there's nothing wrong with preaching from the Old Testament. But there is something wrong when you take the text that you're reading and you twist that in order to build a sermon that doesn't have anything to do with the text. Now, the really sad part in the methods of Dwight Moody is that these kinds of things have become standard homiletical exercises. That young men that come out of our colleges today, they're taught this method. They have that ingrained within them, and so they just keep perpetuating that method, and it goes on and on and on to the next generations. And so preaching is affected by this. The, the, change, the, the, the change of theology downgrades preaching. And, and then I might also say that in many cases, preaching becomes entertainment. Now, you don't see very much of that with Moody, but one of his successors, Billy Sunday, many people saw him as purely an entertainer. Billy Sunday was a showman. He put stomping and spitting and shouting and jumping and running from one side of the platform to the other into uh, the church. And many preachers have become imitators of Billy Sunday. And what he would actually do at times is he would turn backflips off of the platform. He was an entertainer. And, and so today, preaching, those who imitate Billy Sunday, preaching has become like watching a tennis match. Back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And, and I, I, I'm not criticizing that just to do that because you may like that. Uh, that may not bother you at all. To me, it's terribly distracting. I don't care for it. But I'm not going to try to disprove a preacher's method by, by the scriptures because who knows, maybe the Apostle Paul had a little ta-da in his style too. I, I just don't know. But I do remember that we, we had a revival preacher here a few years ago, and some of you have been here this long, you'll, you'll remember this too, that in the middle of his sermon, he went down and he got up on the front row of pews here and hopped up and down from one chair to the other in the middle of his sermon. And before he was through, he had broken through the middle of four of the chairs. Now, Pastor Cregan was here at that time, and he was livid at that. And when, and when this was all over, he said, that guy's never coming to preach here again. But that's the kind of thing that you see in, in places today. I mean, uh, it, it, there's a lot of showmanship that goes on in the pulpit. Well, those kinds of things are shift. They're changes. And I can't imagine that we would see those kinds of things in the New Testament. And what that is is a preacher making himself more important than the message. And perhaps he is more important than his message because most of them don't really have anything to say anyway. And when you listen to them, it's all about me. And they talk about themselves and what they've done, and that becomes their subject. Well, should the preacher be the focus of the sermon? Not according to the Apostle Paul. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? Well, now I want to move on to another change in, in methodology that's brought about by revivalism, and that's the use of singing. Well, we're all accustomed to singing in the church, uh, but what you might not know about this is that when soloists and quartets and singing groups uh, started to go come into churches and that became popular, that was actually an invention of revivalism. Now, most of us think that we really can't do without those kinds of things because they're, they're just so common. But there are two things that grew out of revivalism in, in uh, respect to music. 
uh, it, many of the songs that we sing came out of that period, and many of the of the singers who sing them sing for the same purposes for what came out of that period. Now, let me let me um, emphasize that that singing good songs is not bad, and having good singers is not bad. But it, as I said, it might interest you to know that when those things were first introduced, the reason for them was bad. Now, let's talk about the singers first. One of the things that really uh, catapulted the popularity of Dwight Moody in his revival campaigns was the partnership that he had with Iris Sankey. Sankey was a, a beautiful singer. He was a great songwriter. And when Moody first heard him, he was convinced that Sankey needed to join his revival campaigns. Sankey wasn't really looking for any recognition, and he thought that he didn't have much interest in actually doing that, but Moody convinced him to join him in a revival campaign that he that he was that was taking place in uh, in England, and so Sankey went with him for the series of, of meetings, and from that that series of meetings came this great partnership, a great combination that became one of Moody's most effective tools. Now, what Moody was after with music was was really a psychological ploy. He knew that music could move people like nothing else. And can we all agree with that, that that's true? Music moves people. And how many churches do you see today that they actually build the church on music? How much does music drive worship to the point that many people choose their church based upon the type of music that the church uses? Now, they, we believe that music is used in worship, but music itself is not the worship. Music and, and worship are actually synonymous in the modern church. Now, Moody recognized where all that could go. Where, where does it go? Well, like Buzz Lightyear, it goes to infinity and beyond. And that's why he, he used that kind of stuff, because it helped him to get conversions. And you can see how that follows, that if your theory of regeneration is based on decisions, then what you want to do is do everything that you can to arouse emotions in order to get decisions. Now, going back to Finney, this was the summation of his system. Quoting from Michael Horton regarding Finney, he said, The new birth is simply the effect of successful techniques. That's what I read you in that quote a moment ago. The new birth is simply the effect of successful techniques, and revival is a natural result of clever campaigns. And that pretty much sums up the pragmatic approach of Moody and why he was so anxious to get Ira Sankey to be a part of his revival team. So Sankey was actually nothing but a tool. He was a concert draw. And so people would come and they would hear the beautiful singing and that was like luring them in uh, to the trap of the gospel. And this is exactly what Moody said. He said, the people come to hear Sankey sing and I catch them in the gospel net. Well, is beautiful singing wrong? Well, it's better than bad singing. Uh, beautiful singing's not wrong. Is it wrong for us to have solos? Is it wrong for us to have children sing and play their instruments? Well, you know that we love to hear the children sing. When they sing, that's a draw for us. Family and friends come to, to hear them sing, and, and uh, that draws people in like a, like a fly loves the sweet nectar of a, of a fly trap. And so we get them here, and parents and friends and relatives, they have to hear a gospel message. Well, God knows our heart in that, though. We, we love that singing because there's nothing that we want better than to have our children to glorify the God with, it, with that singing. 
So our purpose is not to be a trap for anybody. We certainly don't have the idea of decisional regeneration like many do. But if you turn that purpose around, then there's a problem. Jesus knew where this would lead. Do you remember when he fed the 5,000, then he fed the 4,000? And then he said, the reason that you come is not because you want to hear the word of God. The reason that you come is for the food. And that's why many churches put music front and center. The music is what people are there for, and nobody really cares what the preacher has to say. And so they, they have their rock concert, they have the style of music that they like, and that goes on forever and forever and forever. Finally, you get to, a, to the time for the preacher to preach, and he gets up and he's got a 15-minute homily and wants to make sure that everybody gets out for line dancing at 12 o'clock. And am I kidding about that? No. Check out, I'll, I'm going to give you a name, check out Spring Hills Church in Santa Rosa. It, it's a Baptist church without the Baptist. People go there, go to church for music. Now, I, I noticed on Google, uh, when, I, when I Googled this, I mean, I, I looked this up and said, well, what are the comments about church there? And one of the comments, the, the main comment, actually the one that was front and center was this. Uh, it said, uh, the music is current. Now, let me translate that for you. Rock out, baby. That's what that means. I mean, who, who do you hear say, well, you know, I really like this church because... The preaching that you get is straight out of the Word of God. The preaching that you get is the doctrines of the faith. The thing that you hear are the very same things that Jesus and the apostles taught in the New Testament. Where do you hear comments like that? Those aren't the comments you hear. The comments are about the music. Well, anything. anyway, there's nothing wrong with music until you get the purpose wrong. And Moody's purpose, I think, was wrong because he used it to manipulate now, let me, let me give you an example of the change in hymnology. I'm quoting from Martin McGowan. He says, The purpose of Sankey's songs, as was the purpose of all of Moody's work, was to win souls to Christ. Well, we commend that. The lyrics of the songs were therefore not doctrinal, but exhortative. Various writers have described these songs. These songs were called invitation hymns and were specifically written for the purpose of coaxing people out of their seats and into the inquiry room. They pleaded with the sinner hypnotically, tugging him forward by repeating over and over again the words, Come, trust now, as he debated with his conscience. Now there's where you see how we got the term invitation hymn. Moody and Sankey gave us this term, invitation hymn, when nobody ever heard of singing an invitation hymn at the end of a sermon. Now, let's take what I've just said and plug that into the modern church service. What happens when you get to the end of the service, when the pastor has this carefully planned, tear-jerking, soul-searching story to tell, and so he tells everybody to close their eyes, and with the music playing softly in the background, he tells the story. And then we begin to sing one verse, two verses, three verses. Then the preacher pleads for someone to come down the aisle and someone comes. And so there are more verses and more soft appeals and more soft music. Now let's all think for just a minute. What is that for? Isn't it the purpose to set the mood? Isn't it to draw out a decision? I mean, what is it that you actually believe about regeneration? Is that an act of the Holy Spirit? Is it divine power that causes that? Or is it the power of suggestion? And that's the way this is often used. 
So it's used to, to set the mood. So you see how that decisional regeneration changes the method. The gospel is no longer enough. The Holy Spirit is not enough. What we have to do is to energize this whole process with human effort. And can you imagine another reason that you would have a scripted story and you would have a special time for this, soft music for it, and an extended plea? Now, if you can come to me with any other reason for that, I would like to know what it is. And so it's, it's, it's really a wonder that the Holy Spirit ever gets mentioned. We talked about that last week. Why do you mention the Holy Spirit? Why do you talk about Him when there isn't really anything for Him to do? So we preach the message, we script the invitation, we use the mood-setting song, we have the tactics, and then we ask a sinner for a decision. So what did the Holy Spirit do? You see, our practice says a whole lot about what we really believe. What is the real theology of our salvation? Now, I've got to stop there for a second. Who am I indicting? Well, I've got to pick on us all. I'm not trying to sell all of our Baptist brethren down the river. Not as if we've never made any kind of mistake about this and haven't done exactly the same things. What I'm saying here is what we have to do is be very careful about the purpose that we do these things. Be very careful about it. I don't think there's anything wrong with singing an invitation hymn. We use an invitation hymn here. I don't like manipulation. I don't like constant coaxing. I'm not for that. But we can all be guilty of this, misrepresenting our doctrine by what we practice. Now, another quote, and I hope you don't mind all these quotes. I just, it's just, I find it hard to say this better. Uh, This quote also, the Lord has not ordained hymns to be used for awakening. Rather, he has ordained the preaching of the gospel to be the means whereby God's people are built up and the elect are gathered. The gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16, and it requires no manipulation of man's emotions through music to achieve its desired effect. Moody and Sankey did not believe the Holy Spirit is sovereign in the application of salvation, so they had to rely on manipulating sinners to, manipulating sinners to get them to choose for Christ. But the scriptures teach that sinners are by nature like the deaf adder which stoppeth her ear, which will not hearken to the voice of charmers, charming never so wisely. Psalm 58, 5 and 6, not even to the charm of Ira Sankey. Now let me back up for just a moment to the lyrical content of these songs. Why do we sing in church? Why do we sing? Isn't our purpose in singing is, is that we would glorify Jesus Christ. Don't we have a purpose in singing that we would worship Christ? Well, if we're to worship Christ, then then why would we change the songs to sing them to the sinner? How, how do we worship Christ by, by making the sinner the focus of the song instead of Christ? And there you get a picture of why we've started to go away from many of the songs that were written during the revival period. Because the songs don't worship Christ. They have another purpose in mind. And we still have a few of those that we sing and we probably need to replace those and, and put some other, others that are better in. But most people believe that, that those hymns are the old hymns of the faith. The old hymns of the faith are the revival songs. And so I'm, we're often asked this. It's a very common, very common thing for people to, to ask before they come here. Do you sing the old traditional hymns of the faith? Now, first of all, uh, many of the contemporary songs are no better than revival songs, and most of them are much worse. 
They are written for an emotional appeal. They're written to get your feet tapping and keeping rhythm and get your head going back and forth and, and all of that stuff. But the revival hymns, neither are they the old traditional hymns of the faith. These, these are songs that were invented for a specific purpose in a particular era. They're less than 150 years old and they aren't worship songs. They're manipulating songs invented by those who have a false view of regeneration. And so what we're doing is just weeding all those out. Are all of them bad? Certainly not. There are some great ones. Great is thy faithfulness. It is well with my soul. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. Those are songs that came out of the revival period. But you can tell the difference between those kinds of songs and a song like A New Name Written Down in Glory. You can tell the difference in those songs. And then we think about the, the new songs that we've been singing, uh, relatively new songs. Um, think about the words of those. We can't hardly get through the power of the cross without being stunned by the work that Christ did on Calvary. It, it's hard to sing those songs without getting a tear in your eye. You talk about emotionalism. Those aren't geared to get the emotions, but just thinking about the words of those songs and what Christ did, you can't help but worship and glorify Him. It's not, to, it's not a thing about magnifying you and, and your emotions and your feelings, but it's what do you think about Jesus Christ? And we sing, how deep is the Father's love for us? Or the one that I, I've really come to just really, really like is, speak, O Lord. I love when we sing that just before I preach. Speak, O Lord. And then in Christ alone. I really love the words of these songs. So how do you top those? I don't know how you do that. I mean, these, these are songs that are written to worship Christ. And I think those are the kinds of songs that we need to sing. And we need, again, to remember the purpose for singing these songs. The purpose is to glorify Jesus Christ and not to do anything else. That's what worship is, glorifying Christ. Now, I'm going to end it uh, there for tonight. Revivalism has affected large areas of church worship, church services. It's, it's affected our theology. It's affected hymnology. It's affected homiletics. It's affected just the worship. And, and we're still, still dealing with all these kinds of effects that are now about 150 years old. It's still affecting us. Now, what I would like to see us do or like to see happen is that we would go back to the, to the preaching of Whitfield and Spurgeon. And that was when the Spirit moved. And we didn't really have to do anything other than preach. And I'm in favor of singing. I love the singing. I look forward to us, you know, coming and singing songs. And the Bible talks about that, making melody in your heart, singing songs to the Lord, spiritual songs, hymns and spiritual songs. It says we ought to use those. But they're never to overshadow the main thing that we do in the church, and that is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, indoctrinating people with the word of truth. That's the main thing that we do. And so if we never sang a song, if we never sang a song at all, we would see the Holy Spirit move. The songs don't make him move. He moves in conjunction with the Word of God. That's what brings sinners to Jesus Christ. And it would be nice if maybe sometime we just prove that all over again. All you have to do is just preach the Word. That's the most important thing that we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the truths of your word and 
we, we try to do our best, Lord, and are, are working on this to try to make sure that our services lift up you and we have none of self in it. We don't want to talk about self. We, we don't want to make this about us, but we want to make it all about you. And Lord, we see these kinds of changes that have been made and, and uh, somebody, I think, has to call attention to that. We can't just let it go and say, well, it's not a problem because we know that it actually is a problem. So we need to get back to understanding that it's the Holy Spirit who works in our hearts. Let him do his work. We preach the gospel and leave everything else in your hands. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to honor you and glorify you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.